What kinds of things constitute biotechnological enhancements? What's the difference between correcting disease and enhancing otherwise normal traits? How does the concept of our resurrection body help us understand where we draw lines and limits on these technologies? We'll tackle these questions and a few more with our guest, Dr. John McLean, author and theologian, vice principal of Christ College in Sydney, Australia. I'm your host, Scott Ray, and this is Think Biblically, the podcast from Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. Welcome, John. So happy to have you with us. One of my dear friends from down under. I'm glad to have you on this with us. Thanks, Scott. Great to be here. So tell me, first of all, for our listeners who might not be aware of this this whole field in general, what do you mean by the term human enhancement, and what are some examples of the kinds of things that you're referring to? Yeah, sure. So a human enhancement has got to do with how we've, we might be able to, or we are already starting to change the way the human body functions uh, in a way that makes it more than a kind of normal function. Uh, so there's all been all sorts of developments in biotechnology in the last 30 or 40 years, and there's a heap more to come, no doubt, some of which we can't even begin to imagine. And some of those open up the possibility of changing the way the body itself functions. So some simple examples are some of the pharmaceutical interventions uh, already uh, People perhaps a little bit in the black market would be taking something like Ritalin, uh, which is developed to treat some, um, attention deficit disorder, those kind of things. But if someone who is already, say, a successful student takes Ritalin, it seems to be able to increase their concentration beyond what they'd normally be able to. So that'd be a very simple example. Okay. Um, but further down the track, there's the real prospect of having uh wearable digital equipment that interfaces directly with the brain there's already some developments around that and you can imagine a genetic manipulation that could take place again that could give you all sorts of abilities or capacities that aren't normally available to the human body okay now john we've been doing lots of enhancement kinds of things uh you know for some time we do you know, I exercise to enhance my muscle growth and my cardiac ability. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, we, I paid Lord only knows how much for music lessons for my kids. And in the U.S., we have Kaplan courses to prepare for college entrance exams. We, we do all those things to enhance our otherwise normal traits, to make them better than they are. So how, I mean, how is what you're referring to different than the kinds of things we've been doing and I think I don't think anybody really has a huge problem with those things um, but how, how is what you're referring to different than those yeah so obviously there is a continuity uh, both we've been developing our bodies and we've been using technology to enable us to do all sorts of things I mean the fact that you and I are talking to each other in different cities you know is not a capacity that's naturally given to or, or given to our bodies you know without the technology so, so of course there's things we've done there but what human enhancement technology is proposing or starting to do is to change the body through a technological or a scientific um, intervention. And I think most people do have a sense that this is a different, this is a new frontier and raises some different ethical questions. They're not entirely different to what we've 
thought about before, but because we're thinking about changing the body and when we talk about genetic interventions, you know, changing the germline so it becomes something that's inherited, uh, that raises a bunch of different questions. Okay, yeah, our listeners may not be aware of that term, germline therapy. Those are genetic corrections or interventions that are um, that have the possibility, at least, to be passed down to succeeding generations. And so I think there, there's a quest, question there about who, who knows exactly what we're unleashing yeah. on, on future generations. So I think, I mean, you talked about, di- you know, digital devices, implants, things like that that interact directly with the brain. Um, think, think way outside the box. Uh, for what what kinds of enhancement therapies, enhancement technologies do you think we might see 30 years from now? It's so hard to tell, isn't it? And it's the, it does feel like the world of science fiction. Um, but you could imagine in 30 years' time, neuroprosthetics, so devices that are uh, digital using AI, so um, artificial intelligence that are actually embedded in people's brains and interface with them and so uh, might massively increase your com- kind of computing power, the speed mm-hmm. with which you can okay. make decisions. Right. Um, uh, you could imagine that there could either be central uh, adjustments or perhaps adjustments to your eyes themselves so you can see with greater acuity. Um, and you can imagine all sorts of combinations of those. Yeah, I've heard there's a, there's actually a genetic enhancement that's being considered that would reduce the average the need for the average night's sleep to somewhere around three to four hours a night. Right. Which would you? I mean, in other areas would be um, uh, extension of life. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if there's there, there may be again genetic or pharmaceutical interventions that would allow us to re- at least really slow down the speed of senescence in the human body and so expand the uh, life expectancy to uh, well over 100 years and perhaps 200 or 300 years. A a lot of this is in the science fiction realm at present, uh, but the rate of change of biotechnology means what seems uh, science fiction now may not be in 10 or 15 years. Well, yeah, the things we're doing today did seem like science fiction 30 years ago. Yeah. And no, nobody envisioned that we'd have the possibility of designer children like we, like we have today. Yeah. Let me, and, let me just and Scott, that's, what, just, that's why I think we need, to, we need to do some thinking about this now. Uh, because even though, we, I mean, I certainly don't feel like I can predict exactly what form this will take, I'm pretty confident it will be a growing issue for us as Christians and in our churches in the next 10 and 15 years. So, John, help our listener, another sort of foundational question for this, uh, help our listeners understand how you distinguish between uh, treating disease and enhancing traits. Because, the, as you know, the line, be- the line between those two often gets a little blurry. Yeah. Uh, I mean, at the extremes, it's not hard to see the difference. Uh, but... In the middle, there's quite a bit more ambiguity. Yeah. Uh, so where, where do you draw the line yeah. on that? Uh, probably in each case, it, it, it's a case, kind of case-by-case case question. But, but the main point I'd want to make is even though 
it does get blurry sometimes, it's still an important distinction to make. Uh, and for this reason, from a Christian point of view, <clears throat> the, the teaching of the Bible and the example of Jesus give us a mandate to heal. Um, it, you know, the the uh, early church worked for healing and, and offered miraculous healing. The Bible prays for healing. And, and so I don't, although we need to be careful about the way in which we treat people in, in medical treatment, the idea that we're trying to correct things that have gone wrong in the human body is relatively straightforward. But it's a different question when we're saying, let's move the body to something that it hasn't been uh, in the past. So that doesn't mean we, I don't, I don't think it means we can't think about that, but it will be a different set of questions. So an example of the blurriness um, that's a pretty contemporary one is a vaccination, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, because in one sense, what the vaccination is doing is helping your immune system to respond to disease faster than it would have usually and more effectively than it would have usually. That's right. It's not treating any disease. That's right. And, and yet, I mean, that's why that vaccination is a good example because it is responding to a disease. True. Although the, actu- although the treatment itself... Pro- proact- is proactively. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Okay, that's, that's helpful. Um, I mean, I've heard, I've heard some suggest that... Uh, our theological categories actually provide some resources that uh, a simply secular view of this does not, uh, with the, with the notion of you know things that are the result of the general entrance of sin into the yeah. world could be um, uh, candidates for treatment, and things that are not the result of the general entrance of sin um, would probably would be some of the givens of life that we're just called to accept. As, as part of our humanity. What do you think of that? So, uh, so I certainly the, the first part I agree with thoroughly. And I, I think that the pattern of creation and fall uh, helps us to understand there's a way in which human life should be, even if we can't describe it exactly. We can't, you know, it's not as if we can say exactly what the uh, you know, average IQ of all human beings should be or anything like that. Uh, but we can understand there was a way that humans were made to be and sin uh, and f- the fall has meant that we're not like that. You know, as Paul says, we uh, we, we live with frustration. Um, but I, I so, so I certainly agree with that first part. The second part, I, I think we can at least contemplate enhancement, uh, but we're going to have to think about that even more carefully than we would about a, a treatment. And it will probably, I think it does, it will have stricter ethical limitations on it. Okay, that's helpful. So one of the things I appreciate about your work on this is how you bring you bring really solid theological categories to, to bear on really complex ethical issues, and you combine ethics and theology really nicely. And in this, in this particular area, uh, how does the notion of our resurrection body impact your view of enhancement technologies? Yeah, so I've, I've been thinking about enhancement or at least realizing I needed to think or I wanted to think about enhancement for a while. Um, and then at some point in the last year or so as I was contemplating it, uh, it dawned on me that Christian theology tells a story 
about what has happened to our bodies and what will happen to our bodies. And that just thinking about that might offer some light, some, and some shed some light on, on what are kind of um, science fiction-y, hypothetical, hard yet to imagine uh, scenarios. So a few things that I'd say from thinking about the resurrection, the resurrection, and especially the glorified body. Uh, one is I think we were we were made, and humanity was made, created by God, set in Eden before the fall, with the prospect of glory, so that the Edenic state wasn't the finished state for humanity. There was an expectation of moving towards glory and being brought to glory as a gift from God. Now, I think that helps to explain why humans do have this longing for enhancement. Um, and it's not necessarily an anti-human or an anti-God mm-hmm. longing. Of course, like all these things, it can be pursued incorrectly, but but just the longing to be more and bigger, better and stronger than we, uh, we are uh, is actually something God's put into us. So it's part of our constitution. Yeah, uh, now, there's plenty of desires that we have that we pursue incorrectly. So just because we have the desire doesn't justify everything we w- might right. want to do about it. Uh, on the other side, uh, the promise of glory is that we will be changed to be like Christ when he returns uh, through his power as we see God face to face and live in his presence perfectly. And we're never going to reach that through any technical developments. And so I, I think that does remind us that a lot of writing about human enhancement has a kind of pseudo-eschatology about it. it. It's as if this is the answer for the real future of humanity. And Christians can't agree with that. Christians are, are going to say, no, our, the real glory comes in the return of Christ when he gathers all those who are his to himself. Whatever we do technically, it's not that. So that, that's I appreciate that perspective on that. I, I mean, in secular circles, they talk about a thing, the, the the phenomenon known as the singularity, when we will be when we we'll, when we will finally have transcended the body uh, once once and for all. And there does you're right. There does have that sort of uh, basically an end times eschatological feel to that. That uh, we will. We will sort we will sort of usher in a secular view of God's kingdom. Yeah. Uh, once we once we reach the ability to completely transcend our our embodied state, you know, or the limits of our embodied state. Um, yeah. But here, I, what I've wondered about this is, you know, I think we have we have a lot of things in, in this earthly life that I would call kingdom foretastes. Uh, that are just, you know, they're just little samples that we get to experience here on earth that by, by God's grace that are, um, you know, that are, that are just glimpses of what life will be like much in, in, in much more of its fullness when the kingdom comes in, in its consummation. And I'm wondering about, some, would it be possible to see some enhancement technologies in the way you've just sort of described this longing for more that's built into us as a kingdom foretaste. What, what do you think of that idea? Yeah. Uh, it's not it's not a way that I'd particularly formulated it before. I guess I'd been thinking more about would we think this was valid or allowable? Um, 
But if it is, if we do conclude that it, it it's that there are some enhancements that are worth pursuing and allowing, yeah, then just as you know, an experience of healing, whether that's through medical processes or uh, you know, immediately through God's miraculous intervention, we'd certainly see those as being a foretaste of the fullness of the kingdom. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think we could we could imagine human enhancement being the same. Uh, as as something that's in prospect, I, I guess at present I'm feeling like the main thing we need to say is don't think it's the fullness of the kingdom. Right, right, clearly. Yeah, and it's just, I think, the, the you know, a, a, I'd call it a small sliver yeah. of, of kingdom foretaste. So. Uh, let me let me pursue this the, on the resurrection body here for just a moment because I think there's an important theological point to be made here. In our resurrection bodies, are all of our diseases and infirmities healed? Yes, I th- they are. Okay, I pro- that's not a gotcha question. I promise. No, no, I know. But of course, we have to recognize we don't always we don't always fully understand what really are diseases and infirmities. Um, okay. You know, so uh, I was talking to a friend about this the other the other day. The the kind of obvious way to think about it, I think is to think about appearance and kind of cosmetic changes. I guess we might call it. There might be all sorts of things about our bodies that we think, surely in glory, it'll be different to this. <laughs> but we might find that actually God's completely satisfied with some aspects of our bodies that we currently aren't. Um, and, and so so. That may turn out to be some things that we already would call you know, disabilities or that we tend to call disabilities or infirmities or diseases. It might turn out that they aren't. Um, but I think those things that are, that aren't according to the way God has intended our bodies to be, they will certainly be healed. Yeah, that, that's, I think, a really helpful, nuanced answer to that. The reason I'm asking is I recall I had a conversation several years ago with a very prominent theologian who my, my colleague who was with me around the table had a, has a son who's a Down syndrome child. And this very prominent theologian insisted that uh, his child will still have Down syndrome in the eternal state. Otherwise, he would be a different person altogether. What, what, do, you, what do you make of that yeah. claim? I mean, I think I, I, my answer is I don't know. <laughs> um, 1 John 3, 2, where John writes, we do not yet know what we will be like, but we will be like him, but we shall see him as he is, uh, at least reminds us of the limitations of our knowledge of what our eschatological state will be. Um, yeah, and okay. so some, some of those questions, especially about disability, um, I, I think I want to say things that, God knows what are genuinely disabilities and what are part of the variety of the world he's made. Um, and he will retain our identity. Yes. Uh, but we see, I mean, uh, in preparing for this, I read a really interesting article arguing quite strongly that, you know, Jesus is raised and glorified with, and, the, and this article is arguing we should translate the word as he has scars, not wounds. Um, and that scars are the remain, you know, what remains of the wounds, but they're not wounds themselves. The wounds have been healed, and yet the marks that they left remain because they're mm-hmm. a sign of 
his identity, but of course in Christ for the, his work for us. Um, and so perhaps there's some sort of parallel with that, with some things that we think of as diseases and disabilities, that there'll be mm. some element of them left and yet they'll be transformed. That's a, help, that's a helpful distinction to make. And I think an important point, important point to make is that we maintain our person, our, we are the same person yep. through whatever time and change we experience. Yep. Because and, I, wanted to, I wanted to say to my theologian friend, you know, on what basis then is our, our identity grounded? Uh, because if, it's, if, we don't, if we don't have something that's not material, not bodily, that grounds our, our personal identity through time and change, then every biological change makes us a different person. You know, not just this one. Yeah, and I think that's that, that's one of the things that I've found helpful in thinking about the glorification of the body uh, is the continuity of the body seems to be very much about maintaining identity. That the me who dies is the me who will be raised in Christ. And yet there'll be a such a thorough transformation of my body in that glorification. And so we've got a um, we've we've got the this extreme example um, of continuity of identity through continuation of a body, but with transformation. Now, John, you maintain in your work here that that we can use enhancement technologies to enhance our embodiedness, but not to transcend it. Can you explain. A little bit more what you mean by that. Right. Well, I'm certainly arguing for that and trying to imagine that out of the resurrection body, that what God does is he promises he will raise us. And so uh, 1 Corinthians 15, of course, Paul talks about uh, natural bodies and spiritual bodies, but he doesn't mean they're material bodies versus immaterial bodies. The spiritual body is the body that is filled with and transformed by and led by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, but it's still very much a physical body. And and so the expectation of glory is that we will be embodied. Uh, and that just underlines what we'd know some, from so many other parts of Scripture, that who we are is intimately tied in with our bodies um, and human life is lived in, in an embodied way and so a, an enhancement, or put it the other way, to reduce our embodiedness would not be an enhancement of human life. And so there are versions of talk about enhancement, that, that you know, talk about um, whole brain emulation or brain mm-hmm. uploading so that the information from someone's brain is transferred onto some uh, digital network and, and maybe with some physical avatar or some virtual, a virtual avatar that's provided to accompany that, but it's no longer a body. And it seems to me that kind of vision, which is often called transhumanism, is is not something that Christians are going to want to support at all as a, any type of enhancement. But if there are versions of enhancement that actually uh, improve some of the functions of our body while leaving us very much clearly embodied, then that might be something that at least we can think about. Okay. So give me just a couple more questions here to be clear on this. Give me, give me a couple of examples of enhancement uh, technologies that you think would be morally acceptable and sort of consistent theologically. 
Yeah. So it's, I guess it's especially the consistent theologically that I'm thinking about at this stage because, I, I mean, each technology and each application of technology will need its own consideration ethically and there might be other reasons why you wouldn't want to do some of these things. Mm-hmm. Right. But at least consistently with a theological vision. Um, I, I mean, I, I think to extend human life, uh, to extend life expectancy, um, of course, depending on how that's done, I, I think we could certainly contemplate that. Um, to increase uh, human strength and, and very um, sensory acuity, I think there's cases for that. Uh, perhaps some uh, moral enhancement. So there may be, uh, I mean, I talked, to, I, I talked to earlier about Ritalin increasing focus, but it does seem to increase empathy as well. Hmm. So there might be some pharmaceutical or neuroprosthetic interventions that uh, help us to relate to other one another better. I, I think they could be contemplated. I'm certainly not at this stage yeah, arguing. Yeah, yeah. We, no, that's helpful. Although on that last one, I want to make sure that they still need people like you and me to teach ethics yes, from time to time. Right. Um, okay, good. That's helpful. Now, one, one final question. John, are you, I mean, given the way our, uh, the way autonomy runs amok in many of our cultures, both I think, both I think in the U.S. and in Australia, how, how optimistic are you about a secular culture's inclination to put moral limits on these enhancement technologies. Yeah, I, I hard to make a call on that. Um, I, I guess I, I, I would say the more that we leave these decisions in the hands of those who are developing the technologies and profiting from the technologies, the more pessimistic I would be about the outcomes. Okay. And so at least it's important, and I'm sure they'll, I mean, just as we've seen with biotechnology already, uh, there's all sorts of things that have happened that I, I think have not been. Well, I, I you know I, I think have been there's been terrible costs of um, experiments on human fetuses and mm-hmm. the, all sorts of things that I wouldn't want yeah, to yeah, yeah. at all. Aren't they? Are terrible evils. There's all there's the prospect for that, uh, but at least we need an educated citizenship, citizenry. Uh, it can't just be the kind of uh, the, the technocrats that are making these decisions. People need to be informed about what, what is happening or what might happen. And the church is going to have a, at least some role in uh, thinking about these things, not only in terms of discipleship uh, for Christians, but also some sort of public witness as much as we've got that opportunity. Well, you know, John, in my view, uh, these questions about biotechnological enhancement are the trickiest, most challenging ethical questions that our culture faces today. I think these, these are the most challenging. I think they require the most, the, the most solid, sound, theological and moral thinking. Uh, and I, I think what you've done here is a really significant contribution to this. And uh, because I just I love the way you you ground this so solidly theologically and then reason from there, um, and so I, I so appreciate your approach as a theologian, but.
but who also has a, has a huge interest in ethics, too, to then put shoe leather on it in the way that you do. So I think that, you know, I, I want to encourage our listeners to, you know, keep your antenna up for things that you see and read in the news about this. Mm. Uh, and I think, you know, we'll, we're going to have some other podcasts on this in the future because I think this is the most challenging stuff coming down the pike. Uh, for a long time to come. So, John, thanks so much for being with us. Delighted to have you. Appreciate thanks, your in, your insight and theological acumen on this. Uh, it's just been a delight to talk to you. Good. It's been fun. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. The Think Biblically podcast is brought to you by Talbot School of Theology at Biola University, offering programs in Southern California and online, including our Master's in Christian Apologetics, now offered fully in law, online. Visit biola.edu slash Talbot in order to learn more. If you enjoyed t- today's conversation with our friend, Dr. John McLean, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything.